Well, thanks again to Justin for being here last week. He needed to uh, get some preaching in for his internship, and it worked out well because I was away. And though I was back in time, I was back on Saturday. It was nice to uh, be able to have some rest and not rush right back to the pulpit. And it was good to uh, see uh, our brothers and sisters at Westminster and to sit with the family and worship together and see some old friends there. So that was a blessing. But I'm thankful to Justin. I have no doubt that he came and preached the word faithfully from Psalm 90. Today we move on and we launch into Psalm 91, just a wonderful hymn. There are certain, uh, a wonderful psalm. Uh, there are certain psalms that in my years here at Affirmation stick in my head. Uh, when I think of the psalm, I think of the tune, um, and Psalm 91 is one of them from my earliest days here singing that, uh, Jesus, what a friend for sinners. I'll always associate that now with, uh, with Psalm 91. Well, what a beautiful psalm and an encouragement. I hope it is an encouragement. We've already heard it read. And I hope just in the reading of it, this is the inspired word of God, not this. Um, and so just in hearing it, I hope that it will be an encouragement to you. Because as we look back over our immediate past here in uh, this country, and of course globally, it's one of the amazing things about this whole COVID business that we've had to wrestle with is it has been a global phenomenon. Um, and so it's not even something that we're just dealing with locally, but something that I don't care where you are in the world, uh, it's discussed. I mean, how you know, you get with friends and how quickly uh, COVID and mandates and variants and all these things become part of our, our regular social conversation. In many ways, it's a shame, but it's a reality that this quickly becomes part of the our casual conversation, and it wouldn't matter where we are in the world, that would happen. And therefore, in some sense, if anything has characterized the world over these uh, this past year and a half, it's been fear. Fear. Of course, we've seen all kinds of other emotions as well bubble up, but if we could pick one that dominated the globe, it would be fear. And I have no doubt that that's true for you as well. Um, Though I'm sure it comes in, in waves. There are times in which we've been afraid for loved ones. We hear stories and, and uh, for one another even within this church. Uh, we pray for each other. Uh, we hear somebody battling with COVID. Uh, we fear for them and for their help. We've seen people lost. And so we know that those fears are not ungrounded. Um, sometimes we wonder whether our fear is ungrounded. Sometimes it is ungrounded. Um, so there's all these kinds of things that we have to wrestle with in a time like this. And really, all COVID has done is exposed a reality that is true every day. Right? Right? We, we walk in the valley of the shadow of death. We know this because we've lost other loved ones. Right? We, we've lost friends, not to COVID, but to car accidents and to cancer. Um, we know that, that death is, is, is like the sword of Democles hanging over all of us. It's always imminent. It's just that we're able to shield our eyes from it most times. We're, we're able to distract ourselves. It doesn't feel like it's just so obvious. But then something comes along like COVID, and it just puts it right in front of us. Uh, um, and, and it caused great fear throughout, again, the globe. So this sermon is not about COVID. But I, I want to tap into that, or but, but it can be into any fear. Fear you have for yourself, for your health, for your career, for your job, for your children, for your family members. Uh, whatever the case might be, we deal with fear. 
It's, it's a human uh, uh, reaction to, to threats. And it's not all bad. Fear, fear can be a good thing. But fear can also be a very paralyzing thing, we know. It's to that that Psalm 91 comes and offers great comfort. It, offered, it offers us the antidote, if you will. It's not a pill. It's not that simple. Psalm 91 has to be ingested, but it's got to be, it's got to be processed. It's got to be cultivated. Psalm 91 is not magic. This will not relieve your fears today. If you battle with fear. But if you dwell. If you abide. If you gaze. If you contemplate. If you meditate. If you pray. With Psalm 91 before you. It will in time be the antidote to fear. I really believe that. So I encourage you, maybe, maybe Psalm 91 is a psalm you have memorized. Maybe you have parts of it memorized. Maybe you, like me, think of Jesus as a friend for sinners and you can kind of sing it. If not, I encourage you uh, to get as much of it into your heart and soul as you possibly can. The psalm is an interesting one. You have three, it's, it's a, in some sense, it's, a, it's not confusing. It's not a confusing psalm. The only thing that's confusing about it is who's speaking and who's being spoken to because it's switching throughout the psalm. It's kind of dynamic that way, in, in some ways different than, than other psalms. We have the psalm begin with the psalmist telling, stating this general, beautiful, wonderful truth that clearly resonates in his own soul and then expresses, I assume, to an audience, perhaps to a, a younger believer, his own testimony on this. You know, verse 2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my God in him I will trust. I'm going to say this. This is what I want you to hear me saying. So the psalm begins with the psalmist acknowledging this great truth of verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And in light of that, I'm going to say this about myself. He is my refuge. I'm going to say that. So you have the psalmist speaking, but he's speaking about himself. And then... In verse 3, he switches, and now he's speaking to you, or he's speaking to this disciple of his, the son of his, this younger believer, whatever the case might be. And now he speaks to him. Surely he shall deliver you. So the psalm turns a little bit. And now, really, verse 3 all the way through 13 is the psalmist telling, taking that truth of verse 1 that he relishes in, that truth that causes him to say, God is my refuge, and then turns and says, you should say the same thing. Because you trust in him, here's what's true for you. And, and we'll consider that here in a second. And then in verse 14, we get an entirely different speaker because the Lord bumps the psalmist out of the pulpit. He pushes him off the stage. And he becomes a direct speaker and says what he, in fact, will do for you. And for this disciple. In some sense, it's what I believe every sermon, this is a great model for it. Every sermon you ever hear, every sermon certainly I ever preach, is basically this Psalm 91 pattern, right? Bill stands up here and says a lot of stuff, and then the Lord bumps him off the stage, and the Lord goes to work on your heart, and he speaks to you. Through the words, no doubt, that have been read, and the words at least that are true, that have been preached to you. God now steps in and he speaks to you by his Holy Spirit. 
That's sort of the pattern to, for you to think of every time you're with worship and every time you're with a sermon. So that's the only, it's not a complication, but it's one of the uniquenesses of this psalm. So let's think about it uh, together for a second. Let's jump back and think, launch into the beautiful truth. Here is the comfort for you. In as much as you battle with fear, in, the, in as much as you battle with anxiety, in as much as the cares and the concerns of this world, which very easily grow up and strangle out your faith, that's the that's the parable Jesus gives in the in the uh, in the parable of sowing the seeds. The seed is sown and it begins to grow, and then the, the cares and the worries of this world, like thorns and thistles, get up around you and choke out the faith. Why, why would Jesus include that in the list of seeds? This is a real thing, and we know it when we look at our own life. We know how quickly COVID can just get in our brains and get around our hearts and cause our eyes to be taken off our Savior and off of our God or fill in for COVID any other thing that does this to us. And there's a whole host we could choose from a long list of things that cause us great fear. What is the truth? Here it is in verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Where do you dwell? Where do you dwell? Do you dwell in the secret place of the Most High? Do you dwell in the inner sanctum, the Holy of Holies, if you will, in the presence of God? Do you dwell with Him? Do you abide under His shadow? You know, again, I go back to that story of um, Jesus in the boat and the storm at sea, right? And the, the problem, I've preached on this before, and the, the problem in that moment, and you all know it, is that when the disciples were in the boat there with Jesus, right, it was, it was the, their problem was one of where they were looking. <laughs> they, they had the King of Kings. They had the second person of the Trinity, in fact, though they may not have known that at the moment, in their boat with them, dwelling in bodily form. And all they could see was a storm. And finally, they, they rustle him up, assuming he can do something, asking him why he doesn't care. And Jesus steps up and, of course, calms the storm. And all of a sudden, now they're overtaken by fear. They thought they were afraid. They were afraid of the storm. And then it says they were just, you know, horror-stricken by this one who was in their boat. Who is this one that even the wind and the waves obey him? What are you looking at? This is another way of asking the question I'm asking from verse 1. Where do you live? Where do you dwell? If we, we don't maybe think in this language in our spiritual lives, but if we did, if we just took that metaphor of dwelling and asked, where do you dwell? Would, you, would the answer be, yes, I dwell in the shadow of the Almighty. That's, that's where I make my home. That's my base. My life is defined by abiding in His presence. And I don't mean presence like, well, God's omnipresence. It's always in the presence. That's true. But where do you dwell? Again, putting the language of the storm and the sea. What are you looking at? What takes up your gaze? What takes up your attention? What overwhelms your mind? Is it the affairs of the world? They're real things. They're things that need to be addressed. The storm, you know, was you could ignore it. But where are your eyes? Where's your gaze? 
Where's your contemplation? What's overwhelming your mind? The one who's in your boat with you or the problems you're dealing with? Again, go back to go back to First uh, Peter, a church that was about to suffer. But but what does he say? He's like, Dude, have you considered what you have? You have what the prophets long to see. They prophesied about this stuff, but they knew it wasn't coming to them. But you have it. You have an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. It's undefiled. Look. The psalmist begins. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Our great God, the God Most High. I mean, what he's saying about God is nothing we, I say, don't know. These are terms that are not unfamiliar to us about God. That he is Most High, that he is Sovereign, that he's the Almighty, that he's our God. That he's our refuge, that he's our fortress, that he's our hiding place. Like all of these terms that are just piled up in these first couple verses. We know these things. But how easily our minds and our hearts and our eyes get drawn away. But if we would dwell, if we would dwell in the presence of the Most High, we would abide, we would be satisfied in his shadow. His guardianship that's over us. Well, the psalmist, the psalmist makes it personal. I do. It's an encouraging and convicting line. I do. And, it, and notice, it's a, it's almost a statement of when you say something like "I will say," it's like I, I'm going to make myself say this. That's kind of what he's saying. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. And again, he's saying this in the presence of this disciple. He's saying this in the presence of this younger believer. He's saying this in the presence of this person whom he's counseling and encouraging not to be afraid of whatever the trials are that are swirling around him. He's saying this in your presence to you. Here's what I'm going to choose to say in the midst of this storm. I don't know how we get out of the storm. Maybe he'll just stand and say, peace. I don't know what will happen, but here's what I'm going to choose to say. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my strength, my fortress, my God. And I'm going to commit right now that I'm putting my trust in him. I don't know how this ends. I don't know what these circumstances mean. But I put my trust in him. That, that I'm saying right now before you. So the psalmist makes it personal. I'm going to choose to dwell in his presence and to abide right here in the shadow of the Almighty. Frankly, where else is there to go? It's like Jesus asking the disciples, are you guys going to leave as well? They said, where are we going to go? You, you alone have the words of life. Like, you are God most high. What else is there to rely on? What else is there to put my trust in? I literally have no hope beside you. So I will dwell. I will abide. And I will say, he is the Lord. He is my refuge. He's my fortress. My God and I will trust in him. In verse 3, the psalmist turns now to you and to me. And he, he, he encourages us in our fear. Surely he will deliver you. Now we have to think about this and we're going to come to this. 
This is one of these passages. Again, it's like it's like Psalm 103 for me, where it says, you know, he, he heals all our diseases. And it's like, he does? How do we we have to we have to think through this with sober minds? Okay, again, 1 Peter 1. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober-minded. Right? We've got to think through this. What is, what, is commun- what is being communicated to us in this poetry, this beautiful poetry? And poetry is true, can be true. Right? Poetry can be true. Metaphors are, can be true, but they have to be interpreted properly. They have to know how to read poetry. Right? You know, she had rose petal cheeks. Like when I say that, if I was saying it in a poem, saying it poetically and saying it metaphorically, none of you are picturing some freak at a circus, right? Who like literally has rose petals for cheeks. You immediately say she had rose petal cheeks. He was he was lightning on the soccer field. Like none of you are going what? How can a man be like? That? Right? You just you immediately know because you understand this. You understand. So we we know that when we read poetry, we have to think poetically. So we do have to ask here what is being communicated, and it's fair to ask. Hey, does that how, how do we how do we handle um, the fact that it says, "Surely He will deliver you"? Surely He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you with His feathers, and under His wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. I love the fact that he mentions this business about night because I don't know if you're like me, but things just magnify at night. It's amazing. It is so amazing to me how things will become monsters at night, as somebody said. You know, and then in the daytime, it just don't seem as big and scary, but then at nighttime, here it comes again. I know why all those little children's books about monsters being under your bed at night, because they are. They are. I found them. They come and get me almost every night. You know, all these concerns and worries of the day that at nighttime just seem insurmountable. I always think I'm dying of a million things in the middle of the night. And so when he says that, when he says that, do not be afraid of the terror by night. I say, yes, I understand that. And again, the Hebrew poetry, right? The terror at night relates to the pestilence that walks, or the, the word is that it stalks in the darkness. Everything's going to kill you at night. And it overwhelms you with fear. Every problem, every conflict with a friend, you know, it just seems like it's, you're not going to get out of this. It's not going to end well at night. Or the troubles that plague us by day, right? The battles we have to fight in the day. The daytime is when we got to, you know, we got the arrow, the actual arrows being shot at us. The night is when we're fearing all the things that will happen, but the, the destruction that lays waste to us comes at noonday, and the arrows fly at day. But all of this, what the psalmist is saying, but all of these things, they, they can't harm you. He will deliver you from these things. Even your enemies, right? You're like a bird, and, this, and the, the fowler is, is setting a snare for you. As, as Mark prayed in his prayer, I mean, we, we've got a battle with all kinds of things, right? J- John Calvin said, 
I've referred to this before, that Christians of all people, right? We, we know suffering on a level that non-believers just can't know because, sure, we all have to deal with cancer. We all have to deal with car accidents. We all have to deal with the, the afflictions of this cursed age. Well, Christians on top of that have people wanting to kill them because of their faith. Right? We have to deal with persecution. Jesus promised it would come. And on top of that, we have to deal with Satan coming after us. The non-believer doesn't have to deal with that. The non-believer, Satan's not after the non-believer. Yeah, that's a non-believer, but he's after you. He's after the church. All the principalities and powers are after you. They're setting snares for you. So we've got this coming from every angle, but the psalmist is, the psalmist is not afraid, or at least doesn't appear. He's choosing to say he's not afraid. He'll deliver you from this. He will deliver you from all these things. Verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. What do you mean by that? Only with your eyes you will look and see the reward of the wicked. That is to say that those who set the snare for you are going to get theirs, and you're going to see it. You're not going to participate. You're not going to, God's judgment is not going to come upon you. But you will witness it. You will see it. The Lord will deliver. He will bring justice upon the unjust you will only see it with your eyes because you have made the Lord who is my refuge even the most high your dwelling place right because you you you've done as I did make may the Lord my refuge your dwelling place therefore no evil will befall you nor shall any plague come near your dwelling for he will give uh, his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways in their hands they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Right? Not only are these things not going to harm you, not only are you going to witness the judgment of God upon your enemies, you're actually going to participate in it. You will trample on the enemy. You will trample on the lion. You will trample on the serpent. So the psalmist begins with this great truth, and then he says, this is, this is the truth I live by. This is what I say. He is my refuge and my strength. And I'm telling you this, friend. I'm telling you this, believer. He will deliver you, and therefore you need not fear. That's a statement from the Bible. Okay, You need not fear. When we fear, and I'm very convicted by this because I struggle with things. <clears throat> when we fear, we are not thinking rightly. Okay? Our eyes are not on the right thing. We're not seeing something clearly. We're not being sober-minded. You're being sober-minded in that you see the dangers that are there. In that sense, you have clarity. Those are real dangers out there. But where we are not being sober-minded is we are not considering, again, the one who is in our boat. We are not considering the one who's casting the shadow over us. Our Father, who's standing right there, who's got this, right? I don't know if your dad was like mine, but my dad used to tell me pretty consistently, you don't get nervous until you see me get nervous. I remember once going into a, we had a very terrible situation happen 
with one of our inner city kids came up and was in a snowmobile accident was killed uh, up by up on not on our property but one of our host homes and we had to go down my dad had to go down and tell the family you know I remember going to the wake and it was not you know we're right in the South Bronx you know right down like 139th Street and man I was scared one because this young man died upstate, right? Every, everything, we're all upstate. He died upstate, you know, and now we're going to be down there in the South Bronx with the family. And I remember being so nervous going to this wake. And I remember just looking at my dad. I was sitting in the front seat. We had a whole crew of us from upstate going down to this thing. I was a kid, so I, I don't know, I was probably 14. And just looking at my dad. I was so nervous about what was going to go down with this thing. And he, I remember that's, I, he said this to me many times in my life, but I particularly remember it there that he, that time, you know, him saying this to me, hey, hey, don't get nervous until you see me get nervous. And I look at him and say, does he look nervous? Um, but that's what a dad says to his son. Like, hey, I'm here. I'm here. If you don't see me get nervous, then you relax. And that's, Okay, my dad probably was. <laughs> my dad probably was nervous. You know, it was a scary situation. He had to speak at this thing. He probably was nervous, and he 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 covered it up to make sure that his son, you know, held it together. But our Heavenly Father never fakes it. Like, we're dwelling in his shadow. I look up, and there he is. And he's right there with me. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He will deliver you. Right? This is not like, oh, you've got to find a way to deliver yourself. No, he will deliver you. Dwell in his shadow. There's nothing you need to fear in the darkness or in the daytime. And that outrageous claims, like verse 10, no evil shall befall you. And he, he goes right down to the littlest thing. Not even your foot dashed against a stone. Right? I mean, it's like not only just big grand things, not even your foot dashed against a stone. Nothing can harm you. No evil will befall you. He will deliver you. So what do we do with this? What do we think about this? How can we bring this into our into our lives? Because you know as well as I do, many Christians have seemed not to have been delivered. Many Christians go through terrible things. Many Christians have been martyred for their faith. How do we deal with that in light of a psalm like this, where it's like, what are we clinging to and what are we hoping? It's a good question. We have to wrestle with it. Good thing we just went through Romans 8. Where in Romans 8, we kind of dealt with Paul's version of this, right? that we know that God is working all things all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. We know this, Paul says. That's basically Paul saying Psalm 91. That's saying we know no evil can befall us. We know, not in a cavalier sense, but we know that we are bulletproof. That ultimately nothing can harm us. We know 
that even those things which may look like they are harmless are actually working for our good if we love him and we're called according to his purposes. That's a hard thing to grapple with. That's what Paul says. And you say, oh, oh, so all things are working for our good. So that means we're not going to go through affliction and trouble. Most certainly not. You remember the end of Romans chapter 8. For we are like sheep going to the slaughter all day long. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And we know nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul tackles this very thing. Ultimately, there is nothing, no evil. Evil will not have an ounce of victory over you. Evil, if we are in Christ, evil cannot touch us. Whatever the worst it thinks it can do, it will not touch us. If we dwell in the shadow of the Almighty, if we abide in His presence, the presence of His holy place, that even the worst that can be done to us physically ultimately is that from which he will and already has delivered us. This is Psalm 91. This is why I say Psalm 91 is not a, a, a pill you take and it just makes you, oh, oh, when I read that, it just makes all my fear go away. Don't forget, Jesus knew this psalm. Satan used this psalm in Psalm 91 to try to see if he could Get him to be cavalier, like, oh, you, you, hey, doesn't this psalm say you're bulletproof? Go up and jump off. He said he won't let your foot be dashed against a stone. Jesus knows this psalm, and yet Jesus himself, as he's going to the uh, to the cross, says, "Now my soul is deeply distressed, deeply troubled." So Jesus is not one who, because even knowing Psalm 91, didn't deal with distress and didn't deal with sweating drops of blood. Jesus went through the grinder. Jesus had to go through those times where it looked like evil had had its way with him. And in those moments, choose to say, God is my refuge. And my strength, and I put my trust in Him, and He will deliver me. We have to take Psalm 91 and we have to work it, meditate, knead it into our souls, and get ourselves with the work of the Holy Spirit, of course, to the point at which we actually believe what it is saying. Because if we believe what this psalm is saying, if we believe that ultimately no evil can befall us, we, our foot can't even be dashed against a stone. And you say, well, I've dashed my foot against the coffee table a million times. I've stubbed my toe. I've been hurt this way. I've battled with this diagnosis. I've lost my job. I've had friends betray me. Well, oh yeah, read the psalms. I mean, they have as well. And yet... The psalmist who has endured all those things can then say and write Psalm 91. Something else is going on here. If we believe what the poetry of Psalm 91, when I say poetry, I'm not saying, oh, it doesn't really mean what you think it means. It just means you've got to understand it in its context. If you understand what Psalm 91 means, you will feel bulletproof. 
Not in a cavalier way. That's what Satan tried to tempt Jesus to do. Not in a cavalier way, but in a real way. We will live lives in which every circumstance is a, is a chance for us to have our faith strengthened and renewed and placed in him. Every circumstance will be an opportunity to glorify him. Every circumstance I can know that, Lord, I don't know what you're doing here. I don't know how we get out of this jail. But I know you've already delivered me. <clears throat> Even if this results in death, you've already delivered me. You've delivered me from all evil. You've already crushed the head of my enemy. And now you let me step on his head. We're going to see the justice of God worked out. And here's why. And this is the condition of this psalm. The condition of this psalm is this. And it's the same as Romans 8. Verse 9. And then down in verse 14 as well. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you. And when the Lord jumps in to speak in verses 14, 15, and 16, notice what he says, because, so here's the condition, because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. Right? It's because we love him, because we trust our Father, because we dwell in the shadow of the Almighty, because we know his name and we have honored his name. I know who he is and I love him for who he is. Because he has done this, I will deliver him. In fact, I'm, I'm just going to recite here in a second all these amazing blessings and promises that are given to you just in those few verses. But Paul says, we know that all things work together for the good of who? Of those who love God and who have been called according to his purposes. Right? This is an exclusive psalm. This is an exclusive promise. When the psalmist says, surely he will deliver you, the you is not universal. Right? The you does not apply to the 10,000 that fall at your right hand. The you does not apply to those whom you will see the judgment come down upon. The you applies to those who put their trust in God and who make him, who is the refuge of the psalmist, their dwelling place. And that's you, brothers and sisters. That's you because of the gift of the Spirit. You are those who call upon the name of the Lord. And I encourage you to ask yourself, it's a chance today to ask yourself again, where do I dwell? Where am I looking? Where am I gazing? Am I sober-minded? Is my mind on Him? Am I trusting in Him? If so, no evil will befall you. Nor any plague come near your dwelling. For He will give His angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. You can even hear that in the, the Matthew 4 text. I don't know if you caught that. Jesus goes into the wilderness. Satan uses this passage to try to get him to be cavalier and put the Lord his God to the test. Oh, this is true. All right, let me test it. I'll jump off this. I'll jump off the temple and see if he'll catch me since he promised no danger would come to me. That's not how the sun works. You can't blindly walk out in traffic and say, well, the Lord said nothing will happen to me. That's not how you, you don't understand poetry and you don't understand the scriptures and you have not interpreted this text rightly. Don't, you don't put your, the Lord, you don't act like an idiot. And then say, but I know that doesn't matter because the Lord, the Lord will deliver me. 
He will. He may deliver you from death, but he may not deliver you from the car that's coming down the hill while you're walking out there blindfolded. And nor is there any promise that he will do that. And Jesus says, I'm, no, that's not how you read this text. And I'm not going to put the Lord my God to the test. And Jesus endures all this, right? Here comes his enemy doing the very thing that Psalm 91 says, hey, this is going to happen, but don't worry, the Lord will deliver you. And yet there he is in the middle of it. Satan is coming and attacking him. And then in the end, as Jesus resists the devil and he will flee, same words are given to you. At the end, the angels rush in and minister to him. The end of, uh, the end of that little passage. The angels come in and they minister to him. And the angels come and minister to him at the Garden of Gethsemane. And even at the tomb, when we get there, we see angels there. Are they there ministering to him even in death? He will give his angels to minister to you. He will strengthen you. The scriptures say, hey, when that time comes and the trial comes and the gun is to your head and you don't have the words to say, the Spirit will give you the words to say. But the Lord will attend to you. He will give you the strength to endure what needs to be endured. When that diagnosis comes, the Lord will give you the strength to endure. His angels will minister to you. There is no promise that he will deliver you from every affliction in this world, but that he will deliver you through it, that he will abide with you in the midst of it. And the deliverance is already yours. It's already yours in Christ. And he promises it here. Now, just we'll end with this in verses 14, 16. Just look, just listen to this, this bubbling up of these promises that are given to you. Because again, the, the Lord in verse 14 just bumps the psalmist out of the pulpit and steps in and says, Let me speak directly here. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high because he has known my name. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him, and I will show him my salvation. Just boom, 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 boom. Here's all the things I'm going to do for him. I will deliver him. I'll set him on high. I'll be with him. I'll deliver him. I'll honor him. I'll satisfy him. I'll show him salvation. He will see judgment. I'm going to do all these things for him because he loves me. And again, I think of Paul's wonderful climactic you know, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. And nothing can separate us from it. Not this, not that, not this, not that, not this, not that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. In First Peter, Peter tells us, again, a church that's going to suffer. And brothers and sisters, I know you are going to suffer. Maybe it's suffering with COVID. Maybe it's suffering for our faith. Maybe it's having to endure trouble at work. Maybe it's having to struggle with family members. Maybe it's, I don't know, just anxieties that I know we're all going to have that. And we are not health and wealth people here. There is no promise in the Bible that says that once you become a Christian, you kind of skate high above those things. No, the reality for Christians is that we are down in those things. We are in, Jesus led his disciples into that storm. They, he said, let's get in the boat and go. Jesus led them out into the lake, right into the heart of that storm. And he will lead you into storms. And when you're there, know he is with you. 
He is with you. Jesus told his disciples right before he ascends in the Great Commission, right? Go therefore into all the world. What is he doing there? He's sending them into storms. They are all going to die for the faith. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And then how does he end it? And lo, I am with you always. Right? Paul, when they're about to behead you in Rome, I am with you. And I will surely deliver you. And Peter, when they crucify you, when they, when they, you know, remember he said they're going to take your clothes and they're going to stretch out your arms. And when they crucify you, Peter, I will be with you. I will be with you. And I will deliver you. No evil. No evil will befall you. Call whatever is happening to you, if you want, call it evil. But I'm going to tell you right now, no evil will befall you. Whether it's COVID or cancer, whether it's the loss of a career, loss of a loved one, whatever these things are that are causing us such deep anxiety, and they are real things. The storm was real. We must digest Psalm 91 so that we are able to believe it. doesn't mean we don't grieve doesn't mean our souls are not distressed. I know this because Jesus did it. Jesus, who knew Psalm 91, it was in his heart and mind, wept at the grave of Lazarus. He was distressed before the Garden of Gethsemane. He sweated drops of blood. So it doesn't mean when you sweat, when you grieve, when your soul is troubled, that you don't have real faith. It does not mean that. Because Jesus had real faith. But what it means is that in the midst of our trouble, there's a foundation. We fall and we land on something solid. It's not a free fall of distress. We land on something solid. And what that thing is, is God, our refuge, our fortress, our God. Right? I, I fall and I hit. And I say, God, none of this makes sense to me. And my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? And I'm grieving at the grave of a friend. And I'm grieving over the news of a diagnosis. And I'm falling. But because of Psalm 91, I land. And I will say to the Lord, you are my refuge, my fortress. I'm going to dwell here. I'm going to dwell here. As troubled as my soul is, I'm going to look at my father until he gets worried. I'm not going to get worried because he has promised no evil will befall me. It's not a silver bullet. It's not a pill. But it is food for your soul. And I encourage you to eat it. As Ezekiel was told and John, take this scroll and eat it. Digest it. Take it into you. And brothers and sisters, it will bear fruit in your life. It will give you spiritual health in the midst of the things that cause us such great anxiety. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our souls are troubled by so many things. The wind and the waves that swirl around us so easily distract us. 
But Father, help us to say as the psalmist did, that you are our Lord, our refuge, our fortress, our God, and in you we will trust. Help us to believe, Father, that whatever befalls us, no evil will befall us. For you have delivered us. Your hand is upon us. Your angels have been commissioned to strengthen us in the midst of our distress. That through it we might enjoy eternal life and rest and joy in you. Strengthen us to that end, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.